The church today, we are continuing this series called I Love My Church. And last week, we started talking about reasons that we love TC and we love the church at churches. And, and hundreds and hundreds of people walked away uh, with keys, uh, symbolizing the keys to the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus declared that he is giving us, that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to go let people into the kingdom of heaven. And today, I, I want to continue that series, and I want to talk about another word that we say around here all the time, and, and that word is community. In fact, if you've been here at all before today, chances are you have heard me say or you've heard somebody else say that we are not a church uh, with community groups. Finish it with me. We are a church of community groups, that, that you need to be in circles with men and women, uh, knowing who you are in Christ, propelling one another on uh, to all that they can be in Christ. And community, it is the heart and soul uh, of what we do as a church. It's how we take care of each other. It's how we do pastoral care. It, it fuels our weekend services. In fact, our weekend services are just overflow of all that God's been doing in, in our community groups. It's how we grow and advance in our journey with Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear me today. If you are not in a community group, you are not experiencing all that the church has to offer. In fact, you're not experiencing all that the Word of God promises you as a child of God. And, and so if you got your Bible, we're going to work through six verses of Scripture today. And, and we're just going to read these verses. We're going to let the Holy Spirit speak to us when we get there. Hebrews chapter 10 is where I want you to turn in, in your Bible. And, and this passage that we're going to look at today, it begins and it ends with a focus in and on uh, community. And, and when we talk about community in, in the church and, and the Bible talks about family, it's one and the same, that, that the family of God it is the brothers and sisters in Christ. It is us coming together. The New Testament takes for granted that you and I would be in small groups with other believers doing life together. And, and verse 19 is where I want to start. And, and uh, it says, therefore, brothers and sisters. Now, you can just stop there in, in that phrase because anytime you read that phrase in the Bible, brothers and sisters, the Bible writer is speaking to a Christian audience, right? It's as if uh, Sister Sledge is playing in the background, we are family. Every time you read that, I got all my sisters in me, right? That, that it is playing, it's the theme music as the writer is saying, dear brothers and sisters, because some of the Bible is written about you and me bringing those outside the faith family into the faith family. But, but much of the Bible is written specifically to those who are already in uh, the family of God. And, and next week, we're going to do pure gospel. I mean, we're just going to share the gospel uh, crystal clear. And, and uh, it's what we call a harvest Sunday around here. The, the expressed goal is for people who are far from God to come into a relationship with God. And we started doing this about a year ago, uh, just a few times a year. We call this a harvest Sunday. And, and the reason we started doing that is that for years, I, I would preach a pure gospel message just whenever uh, I wanted to or felt led to do that, and you would come up to me afterwards and say, Pastor, I love that message. Had I known you were going to share the gospel that clearly, I would have brought my neighbors, I would have brought my coworkers, I would have brought my kids' friends from school, because that's what they needed to hear. And, and at first I was offended by that, and I was like, what they need to hear is every week. And, and, uh, but then I thought through what you said, and so we started telegraphing. 
those messages. And we started telling you weeks in advance, hey, this Sunday is the Sunday you want to bring unchurched people. This Sunday is the Sunday you want to bring people who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's next Sunday, okay? And so you invest, you invite, and you bring people next Sunday. We're praying for 100 people to give their lives to Christ in one Sunday across our campuses. And I want you to pray with me in regard to that. But today is just the opposite of that. And speaking of family... Today, we have one of America's favorite families with us, the Robertsons uh, from Duck Dynasty. And would you just put your hands together and welcome them and, and say thanks for coming. I'm going to ask uh, for Corey and Sadie uh, just to come up here. And uh, I just uh, had met them, I don't know, six or eight, nine months ago, something like that. And uh, I drove down to West Monroe to meet them. And I, I got to say, when I watch the show, I, I am a little bit skeptical of, of TV because I've been around cameras and I've been around, and I'm wondering, is that real, honestly? Is, are they really family? Are they really uh, all related? And, and I'm from Louisiana, so I know that happens. And, 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 and today, I mean, the whole family, I don't know, is Cheyenne related? No, Cheyenne Cheyenne's is not related. Friend. So we brought one outsider in. That's right. And, and so the rest of them are family. And uh, here, here's what I think. The first time I watched Duck Dynasty, I thought it's a modern-day Waltons. That's what I thought. Because the prayer time around the table at the end, and that dates me a little bit, because most of these people in here don't know what the Waltons are. But, but the, it, it was Christian, and it was family, and it was about community, and it's real. Uh, I, I went and saw it, and, and it is real. Talk to us just for a second about family and, and how important that is to you and how that made the show what it is. And, just talk to us about family for a second. Well, yes, we really are all family. Um, Willie likes to do that whenever we've asked, been asked by interviewers before. He's like, oh, no, I just met her a few years ago. <laughs> like, they casted this whole step net. We really are family, and we actually do all live on the same street. As in, um, my, my mom is next door. Jason meets you across the street. Jeff and Jessica are there. Alan and Lisa are there. Aunt and uncle, grandma. You know, so we are just, like, all there all the time. And we love it that way, and we really, um, we feel very blessed to have that and have that yeah. family support, family um, guidance. We hold each other accountable. You can't really, you know, we yeah. made a, whenever we first decided to do the show, you know, it was a big decision. You know, of course, we went and told Phil, and he was like, it'll never work. No one will ever watch it. You know, it's going to be, you know, why would people watch our, our family? You know, we're like, well, let's just give it a try, you know. But we sat down as a family, and we really prayed about it, and we talked about, you know, what we were going to do and why we were going to do this and how we were going to yeah. do it and, and continually give glory to God and do it for the right reasons and point people to him. And, um, you know, we, we plan like a little family, a family code word that if, you know, if anyone was getting off track, then we would say, and it was remember the Alamo. And I don't know why I think Sai came up with that. I don't know why it was that, but remember we, we the decided, Alamo. remember the Alamo. So we lost they, at the Alamo. If anybody gets a little, yeah, yeah. well, see, that's the reminder, <laughs> you know, if anybody gets a little off and um, forgets what the purpose is, then that's our code that's word good. to bring us, bring that's us back. Good. It's good for a family to have code words to say, hey, you're stepping out of bounds and that I, I am provoking you. We're going to get to that word in a minute in this passage of scripture. But one of the things that tied our hearts together, and this is the first time I came down there, it wasn't, I do like to duck hunt, and rarely do I get to duck hunt with people that know what they're doing, but I walked in, and uh, there was one guy putting duck calls together, one, in the whole building, it was one guy. 
and, and he was checking them and putting them together. But, but that didn't knit us together. What knitted our hearts together, and I felt it, and I, and I think you felt it when we went to lunch, is the heart for adoption and, and the heart for God's children and the heart you guys have adopted twice, right? And, and so we partnered together this last year on this NASCAR event that you guys have done. In fact, I, I just, church, I want you uh, just in all of our campuses just to put your hands together and thank this family because this is an influential family who has decided to use their influence for good. And there are a lot of families that use their influence for other things, but they're using their influence for good. And orphan care is kin to the heart of God. And, and uh, we're really excited. They, they have a, a thing called Drive Adoption. In fact, you could go to that website. What is that website? Driveadoption.org. Driveadoption.org. You can pay attention to what they're doing and how they're using their influence to uh, divert funds in the kingdom of God into uh, families who want to do that. And, and tonight, Sadie is our guest tonight. And, and Sadie, how old are you, Sadie? I'm 19. Sorry, my voice 19. is a little cracked. Yeah, I'll ignore that. Yeah. I'm 19. 19 years old, and God has given her a platform. I met her brother at Liberty a few years ago when I spoke at Liberty and his wife. And, but God is raising Sadie up to have that platform. She was on Dances with the Stars. How many of you watched that show, <laughs> Dances with the Stars? And, and uh, did you win? Second place. Second place. Touch okay. the subject. Yeah. <laughs> what did she say? Touchy subject. Thanks yeah, for bringing that up, that she kidding. lost in the end, but no. Sadie, around here, we think second place is first loser, and, and uh, we're, we're very, very, Thank very you. competitive so, around here, and, uh, but we'll give you a trophy. <laughs> the culture would give everybody a trophy, because they okay. participate, and, and so, but, but we do want to say uh, about Sadie's platform, okay? She's, in fact, she's launching an app uh, this afternoon from our church, hundreds and hundreds of teenagers, 1,200 teenagers from our churches and their friends will be in the Battle Creek campus this evening, uh, today. And, and the platform that Sadie is using is Live Original. She's trying to encourage the next generation uh, to be themselves and, and not to be a carbon copy uh, of everybody else. Tell us a little bit about that, Sadie. For yeah, so it's kind of funny because you're talking about Hebrews 10 and that's yeah. where my favorite verse comes out of, Hebrews 10, 35. It says, do not forget the confident trust you have in the Lord for to be richly rewarded. And what I love about that is that when I read that in eighth grade, I was like super not confident at all in myself or who I was, middle school problems. And um, when I read that, it kind of stuck out to me because it wasn't talking about the confidence in yourself for what you looked like, what you did, what your sport you played, but the confidence in God. And I kind of just started thinking about that and how am I supposed to be confident? I've been trying to base this off my own life um, and finding myself and my identity in Christ that's where I like learn how to be original and learn how to be who I am and truly just turn into a different person. So I really want people to be able to find, and kids my age, don't wait till they're adults, but find themselves rooted in Christ today. And so that's kind of where the whole message started. My dad nicknamed me the original when I was five years old because I was preaching to people. He was like, this kid is weird. And he named me the original and it kind of stuck with me. And so that's kind of my message. But of course, I'll expand on that tonight. It's fantastic. So, would you just lift your hands real quick? All of our campuses, you can't see the other six buildings. Just lift your hands and say, hey, we're praying tonight for teenagers to give their lives to Christ, for their lives to be impacted and changed as this young lady shares. Put your hands together and thank them for coming. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Good to see you. See you in a little while. Okay. So, Next Sunday is this Gospel Sunday. It's this Harvest Sunday that we're talking about, right? And, and, but today is just the opposite of that. 
Today is for those who are in the family. And so if you're visiting today, let me do, you came on the wrong Sunday. It's next Sunday that, that we want you. And so you, you come back next Sunday, and it will be specifically for you. This week is a break for you. You get to watch us squirm because what I'm inviting you into is a family meeting. And probably it's a good week for you to be here, actually, because you're going to get a real glimpse into who we really are and what we're really, really about. And I hope to shatter some of the myths that maybe culture has put on you about church. So let's look at that verse again. Let's get a running start again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, therefore, brothers and sisters, this is to the family, since we have confidence, this is what she was just talking about, right? Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, circle that word confidence in your Bible, and I want you to understand, this is not something that is conjured up. This is not bravado. This is a very real confidence that comes from Jesus Christ, and it is only for those who are in the family. And here's the good news. It's available to all who will come into the family. And confidence for what? What, Because confidence is for something, right? Confidence for what? Confidence to do what? Look at what the writer says. Confidence to enter the most holy place. Now, what is that about, the most holy place? Some of you have some study and some knowledge of the tabernacle and the temple system of the Old Testament. Keep in mind the context of the book of Hebrews is to the Hebrews, right? It's to the Jews who understood clearly the sacrificial system. Now, if you've not seen a model of the ancient temples or Herod's temple, there were outer courts, and it was like a target that you were moving towards the bullseye as you made your way in, and not everybody could make their way in. There was a court where Gentiles could only go so far. Those who were not Jews could not go past this threshold. And then there was a Jewish court. And women could only go so far in in that court. But then the Jewish men could go even further. And you could enter what was called the holy place. But then there was another threshold veiled off from the whole of population that only one person could enter. And it was the high priest. And the high priest was the only one who could enter into the holy of holies, the most holy of places, where the Ark of the Covenant was and where the mercy seat sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ten Commandments were stored, where the rod that uh, Moses and Aaron carried, all of that, the manna that, that had been stored was in that Ark, and that was the presence of God. That's where God dwelt and hung out. And the holy of holies was only entered once a year by the high priest on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And the high priest would go in and make sacrifice for his own sin. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood of the Lamb on the altar in order for the sins of the whole nation to be forgiven. And and history tells us that they would tie a rope around his waist or around his foot because if he went into the Holy of Holies and he was not right with God, in the very presence of God, he would drop dead. And no one was holy enough to go into the Holy of Holies to get him, so they would have to pull him out from under the veil with the rope, dragging his dead body out of the very presence of God. That's the context that this writer is writing into when he says you and I can have the confidence to enter into the most holy place. Now, if that was the context, the question had to be, how on earth could we possibly do that? 
How could we go into the most holy place and by what credentials could we do it? Well, look at the verse again. We enter by the blood of Jesus. Listen to me. Apart from the blood of Jesus, we are not in and we have no way in. It is the only way in. And that theme started all the way at the beginning of this book in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered the world and entered into mankind. The Bible says that they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. That would be awkward, right? To, to cover yourself with fig leaves. But, but there was no blood involved in the cutting of fig leaves. So there was ultimately no covering because blood was required for the covering of sin. And God came along, and the Bible literally says in the Hebrew, that in the cool of the day, God came walking. That verse literally translated says, and the voice came walking. The voice came walk. What kind of a voice walks? What, what is the Bible trying to indicate there? What the Bible is trying to indicate there is that the Word came walking. Well, what does that mean, the Word came walking? Some of your Bible scholars, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's John chapter 1. And the Word was God, and the Word became God, and, and the Word came and dwelt among us. Listen, this is not creation playing out in Genesis anymore. Creation is over. This is incarnation. This is God coming in. This is salvation. This is redemption playing out in the very first book of the Bible. Creation is over. The fall has happened. This is the now seated God, finished with creation, standing up to rescue his creation. This is Jesus on the scene in the book of Genesis. And he covered them with the animal, uh, with the skins of animals. Why? Because blood was required. And that was setting the stage for the theme that would run from Genesis 1-1 all the way through the book of Revelation about the blood of the Lamb. And this writer in Hebrews is saying that you and I have that confidence to enter the most holy place. How? By the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that exciting? That's such good, good news. Look at verse 20 and let's keep reading. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. That is his body. I want you to circle three words in that verse. New, living, and open. New, living, and open. Those are big, big words when we talk about uh, Jesus. That New, literally in the Greek. You ought to write this down. If you get into this kind of stuff and you geek out like I do on, on the application of this Greek passage of Scripture, listen, the Greek word there for new means this. Literally, it means freshly slain. The freshly slain Lamb of God. That Jesus had been freshly slain as if he were the Lamb of God placed upon the altar. Uh, Jesus is the way, right? He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. According to John chapter 14 and verse 6, the old way was the mercy seat. We just talked about that a moment ago in the tabernacle. And, and God is saying now, that's now dead. That is not the way. The, the way is new, and it's Jesus. The new, it's not only new, it's living, which is great news, right, that Jesus is alive. A dead man can't be anybody's savior. Next week, we're not introducing people to a dead man. We're introducing people to a man who was dead and is now living. And, and the reason he can be your savior is because he is alive, because he conquered death, he conquered hell, and he conquered the grave. That's what Jesus did. It's new and it's living, but it's not just new and living. It's open. And we talked about that a few weeks ago when I preached out of Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Were you here for that passage? Were you here for that sermon? If you weren't here for that Sunday in the sermon, it was the best of all the summer sermons, of all of them. Because I, I preached out of that passage of Scripture. I'm making a joke there. 
this awesome hot pastor uh, is making a joke. By the way, it was Meredith who wrote that out there, uh, smoking hot pastors, why she loves her church. And she didn't even come today. And, and, and so to, what I want you to know is this. Listen, the door is open. And remember when John was called in that passage of Scripture in chapter 4, verse 1, he was let up into heaven where he could see heaven and he could see the future. And he says, I saw a door and it was open. The door has been nailed open into the presence of God. Isn't that great news, right? Last week we handed you keys and we, and we said you need to remember to pray for the kingdom, for the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the people that you're going to let in. And next Sunday we will see people walk through that door that has been nailed open by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be inviting those we have been investing in and we're going to watch people walk through that open door. In fact, every campus, just put your hand up. Will you pray for 100 people to come to Christ? Next Sunday, all in one day, a hundred people. You're going to pray with me about that. Now, not only can you pray about it, you can bring people because we won't see a hundred people give their lives to Christ unless we bring hundreds of guests and visitors. And some of them, a hundred of them, we're praying will trust Christ to give their life to Jesus. It's open for us. Now, he goes on to say, through the curtain. Right? Through the curtain is what he says. It's been open for us through the curtain. What does that mean? That's literally through the veil. Again, the image is back to the Holy of Holies. There was a veil. I've studied it one time, but I don't remember now the dimensions of that veil. It is massive. It's unbelievably thick, wide, and tall. And history tells us that when Jesus died on that cross, that that veil into the Holy of Holies was shred. It was ripped from top to bottom, as if to indicate God did it, that it was ripped from the top where God is in heaven down to the earth where we are, nailing it open that we may enter into to the Holy of Holies. And the writer of Hebrews, look at what he says about that veil. It's so interesting. He says that the curtain or the veil is the body or the humanity of Jesus Christ, that it was veiling the very presence of God in him. We talked about this last week, the God-man, right? He's all God and he's all man. Now, verse 21, look at what the Bible says in verse 21. It said, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Again, he is continuing with this same imagery. And if you don't know the imagery and you don't study the imagery, the Bible won't make sense to you. The imagery of the temple and the sacrificial system, and now he's moving into the priesthood, right? And this, by the way, for all those of us who were not raised Jewish, on this side of the Bible being written, on this side of the, you know, the, the uh, canonization of scripture on this side of the book of Hebrews being written, on this side of all the temple and tabernacle and sacrificial system and priesthood, this side of all of that, it's hard for us to understand all of the imagery that the writer of Hebrews is given, but I want you to think about this from the Jewish side. And I want you to think about it from those who were living in the sacrificial system and living in the temple system. And that was how you got right with God. And that's all you had ever known. And now you are looking at the system that you had only known for all of your life. And the writer of Hebrews comes along and says, hey, all of that, all of it, that was precursor. That was setting the stage for the story. That, that was all just getting us ready. Jesus is the high priest. And not only is he the high priest, he is the Lamb of God who was slain upon the altar for us, and it is done, and it is open. He's the high priest over what? Look at what the Bible says. He's the high priest over the house of God. Now, what's the house of God? The house of God 
biblically is the church. When you read this, you see this over and over and over in Scripture. Listen, the house of God, the church, it's not bricks and mortar. The church is people. It's living people. It's you and me. We are the church. We are the family. And this writer is writing in this chapter to the family. And today, when we exit the seven campuses that God's given us today, I want you to understand, we not, we're not leaving the church. The church is leaving the building. You understand what I'm saying? The, the church doesn't stay here. The church is leaving the building. And, and the church is no longer in the building because the church went out to wherever we are. And now we're the church at wherever God puts us. That, that we gather and then we scatter. We gather and then we scatter. Remember the word Jesus used? We talked about it last week, ecclesia. We are the called out ones. We are the ones who gather and then we go scatter. So what is this writer of Hebrews saying to those of us who are in the family of God? Look at verse 22. Let us then draw near to God with a sincere heart. Draw near to God with a sincere heart. Listen, he would not tell us to draw near to him unless it were possible for us to draw near to him. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying today, so look at me with your eyes and pay close, close, close attention because I do not want you to misunderstand this. Our relationship with God Almighty is secure through the blood of Jesus Christ, but our fellowship and our intimacy with our Heavenly Father is about us doing something, and that something is us drawing near to Him. Literally in the Greek it says, keep on drawing near. You, it's not a once and done drawing near to the person of God. That's in the imperfect tense. In the Greek, that means we do it and we keep on doing it. That the continual activity for the child of God is to keep drawing near to the presence of God. Now, how do you draw near to the presence of God? He tells us, with a sincere heart. We, we do that with sincerity. You know what's required to draw near to God? Sincerity and truthfulness. That's what's required. In other words, you can't pretend your way into intimacy with God. You can't do it. You can pretend your way into religion, which Jesus hates, right? But you can't pretend your way into intimacy with God. You can't do it. You have to get on the real page of life. God will not meet you on some pretend page where you pretend to have it all together. He won't. And I meet people all the time that said, hey, I've been in community group. I've been in small group. I've been in church. I've been in this all my life, and I just can't break free. You can't break free because you are pretending to be on a page that you are not really on. God will not fight for you on a page that you are not really living in. He fights in the truth and he fights in the reality of where you are in your life. This morning a man came in the guest reception and said, Pastor, my name is, and he told me his name, and he said, I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. And he said, I want you to understand what you preach today is the living word of God. It is the truth. I was set free from those things by getting into a fellowship of believers who confessed their sin to one another and then professed who we were in Jesus Christ. And God set me free. Listen, this place is a grace place. It is a place where it is okay to not be okay. It is not okay to stay there, right? So it is a grace place. You cannot be okay. It's okay to not be okay, but you don't stay there. We're, we're going to push you on. We're going to move you forward in your relationship with Christ. But if you get off of that pretend page, God will do something powerful in your life. 
And you tell the truth about what you're struggling with. You tell the truth about what you're walking through. And God will begin to use the light of the truth to set you free. Now look what he says. He says, and, not just a sincere heart, and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Do you know what that means? It means we come with full assurance. In other words, we don't have to come sheepishly into the presence of God. We, we don't have to come awkwardly and unsure in, into the presence of God. We come with assurance, and not just assurance, we come with full assurance, right? We're not coming with a little bit of assurance. We're coming with full, a full dose of, of assurance. Uh, last week or two weeks ago, I was meeting with the pastor's council, which, I mean, they're the guardrails of the church, right? And, and technically, I report to them, and, and this is kind of a big deal meeting when we do this meeting every month, and I'm meeting with the council, and the glass door into my office pops open, and here come three of my four children right into my office. And they just come bebopping right into my office during the meeting. They walk over and grab some M&Ms out of the jar, and, and they're walking through. They didn't even remotely care that there was some meeting going on in their daddy's office, right? And, they, and Eli, in fact, interrupted the meeting and said, Dad, when you're done, can you give me a call, please? And walked out. Let me just tell you something. Why they bebop into my office with full assurance is because they know whose office that is. They know this is daddy's office, and they know they have an intimate relationship with daddy, and they come bebopping in like they own the place. You and I come with full assurance. Why? Not because of anything we've done. We come by the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. And he says it's not just been shed on the altar. Look what he says in that verse. He says it's been sprinkled on our hearts, which cleanses us from a guilty conscience. A few weeks ago, I taught you the, the sermon, This Seat is Taken. Lots of comments. I mean, we've gotten lots of comments from all over the country, actually, and several different countries of people saying, I have used that phrase in my personal walk and personal life, this seat is taken. Remember, John was called up into the heaven. He didn't just see the door open. He saw the seat, and there was somebody on it. And it's Jesus who sits on the throne of our lives. And, and so when guilt comes to try to sit in the throne of our lives, we say, absolutely not. This seat is taken. When shame comes to try to sit on the throne of our lives, we say, no way. You can't sit here. Jesus sits on the throne of my life. He's the only one that gets to sit on the throne of my life because this seat is taken. And he says, our bodies are washed. Look what he says there, pure water. There's some real debate among scholars as to what he's alluding to there, I think both are right, actually. I don't think you have to pick one or the other. Some scholars say he's alluding to water baptism and that after you come to Christ, you go under the water as a picture of what happened in your heart. And I just gotta say to you, it fascinates me. This is one of the greatest mysteries of pastoring to me, that men and women would cross a faith line to give their life to Jesus Christ, pray and ask Jesus to come in and be the Lord of their life, and then the very first step of obedience is believer's baptism, and they're going to balk at it. Fascinating to me. It's so fascinating to me. In fact, I would say to you, I've never met a Christian who walks in victory continually who has not yet taken the step of baptism. I just haven't seen it. But other scholars say, no, no, what the writer of Hebrews there is alluding to is he's alluding to what Ephesians says where he tells us that we are washed by the word of God. I think both are right. 
I, I think both are right. That, that we're washed continually by the Word of God is what Ephesians says to us. What does that mean? It means we let the Word of God wash over us and tell us who we are. And tell us who we are and consequently how we are to behave. Now look at verse 23. Now look what he says. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. In other words, you and I are to hold on to hope. We're to hold on to it and not let it go. We hold on to it like it's our child in a crowded grocery store. We hold on to it like it's going to go away. We do not let it go. How do we hold on to it? We hold on to it unswervingly. I mean, there's emphatic adverb right there. We hold on and we hold on unswervingly. Do you know what that Greek word means? It means, because the Hebrews get it, okay? So you have to be explained to understand the Hebrew context there. What that word means is that we're not going to lean back into the Old Testament or into the Old Covenant, that we are going to lean forward into the new and living way. In fact, we're not going to lean back into the old way. We're going to lean so far into the new way that we're going to fall into it, that we're going to fall into the grace of God. We're going to hold on to it unswervingly. Now look what he says about that hope. That hope that we profess. You, you got to write this down. If you lead a community group, if you're in a community group, you have to understand this is prescription for successful intimacy and community group. We must profess our hope. Hear me today. Hope is one thing. Hope professed is another thing altogether. It is a bigger thing. It is a more powerful thing. It is a glorious thing. And something happens to us when we say it out loud, when we declare it with our mouths, that what God says about us, when we profess it, we put the devil on notice. When we profess it, it puts fear on notice. When we profess it, it puts addiction on notice, that we have hope, and our hope has been placed in and on and through the person of Jesus Christ. And that word profess, by the way, it's kin to the word confess in the Greek language. They're, they're brother and sister words, right? Which come from the two Greek words, homo logos. I've taught you this dozens and dozens of times. Homo means saying. Logos means word. So the word homo legeo, translated confession, means to say the same word as. And the implication for the family of God here is that you and I are to come together. And when we come together, there's an agenda of two items. We're going to confess and we're going to profess. We're going to confess the sin of our lives. We're going to confess the attitudes of our heart. We're going to confess the willful uh, neglect of the things of God and the people of God. We're going to confess. We're going to say the same words as. We're going to call it a problem. We're going to call it sin, and we're going to declare it. We're going to go on the real page of life. But then we are going to profess the righteousness that is ours in the person of Jesus Christ and who we really are and that we lived beneath our means. We lived beneath our calling. We lived beneath uh, the blood of Jesus over our lives. And there is an implication for the family of God, that we would walk in continual confession and profession, and confidence comes from that. And by the way, you got to get in circles to do this. You can't sit in rows and this take place. In fact, I'll tell you this, in all of my years in ministry, which we just crossed this summer, 25 years I've been doing full-time ministry, 25 years. And, and uh, that's amazing to me. I know most of you thought, hey, you're not even 25 years old. And in uh, 25 years of encountering people on a daily basis in one form of professional ministry or another, I have never one time 
met a victorious Christian who was not in some way or another a part of a small group of believers. Not one time. Not one single time. Have I met a man or a woman who was walking so closely with Jesus that they were defeating sin and defeating the devil and walking in victory in their lives that was not a part of some band of brothers or sisters or both in the body of Christ. And I, what, is, what are you trying to say? Here's what I'm trying to say. What we do in this big room and these big rooms is a big deal. But what we do in homes is a huge deal. It's huge. And, and what... Is it that we know about this Jesus, the one we hold on to and this hope that we hold on to? Look what the Bible says. For he who promised is faithful. In other words, he has made some promises and he is faithful to keep his promises. Look at, look at the next verse, verse 24. And let us consider. You know what that word means? Attentive, continuous care. Let us consider. You want a prescription for a good marriage? Consider. Consider one another. Give attentive, continuous care to the other one, and your marriage will work. Listen to me. In, in other words, we are to take note of each other's continual spiritual welfare. That's what we're doing. We consider it. We ponder it. We think on it. We are considering what? We're considering how we may spur one another on. Throw that up there. How we may spur one another on. What on earth does that mean? What does spur mean? It's not just a basketball team in San Antonio that we beat. Right? It's a verb. And that verb means to provoke, that we are to provoke or stir up. It means to irritate. It means to shake up. It is used as a medical term to indicate a violent shaking. In other words, this is not a flimsy word where you come together in community group with other believers and you go, hey, if you think this is a good idea, let's do this together. That's the exact opposite of what this is. This is we are provoking one another. This is getting in one another's face, grabbing each other by the shoulders, shaking the other person awake and saying, this is not an option. You are going to do this this week. It's the word picture of a coach calling a timeout or at halftime, getting in the face of his team and saying, this is how we are going to do this. And I want you to hear me today. In the face of opposition that this culture will bring on you, our temptation is to go run and hide and end up in solitude. And here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That's not a good idea in that moment. In that moment when you are struggling with, with temptation or sin or something in your life, that is the perfect moment for you to get together. To get together with other believers. And the application in today's world is this. You and I, because of the culture we live in, we need a weekly timeout where we get together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, when pressure builds on your life, and it will, we live in a fallen, sinful world. When pressure builds on your life, you don't blow off that steam alone. That's dangerous for the children of God. You blow off that steam in a body, in a community with one another, where you can hold each other accountable and provoke one another onto the things of God. Who do we provoke? We provoke one another. That's what he says. Do you know what that means? That means there's not one provoke on the stage and rows of provokettes. That's not the picture. It's a bunch of provokers all being provoked and provoking one another in a circle. That happens in living rooms. It happens in homes. It happens in community groups. So he's talking to the family and he's talking about our confidence. 
that we have in the person of Jesus. And, and he's talking about our covering that we gain through the blood of Jesus. He's talking about our way through that veil or through that curtain. He's talking about what we have and who we are in Jesus Christ. He's talking about this hope that we have and this hope that we profess. And then he says we are to continually be in community with the family of God. We are to be in biblical community, provoking one another. In fact, I would say this to you, and I want you to hear me. And I want to throw it out there as a warning. And I want to tell you that it is a warning. And, and, and I got to tell you, I'm very, very concerned about church culture today that, that where the pastor's not allowed to give warning from Scripture anymore. That you just want to come in and you know, tickle my ears for 50 minutes and then walk out and go live your life any way you want to live it. I want to give you a warning because the Bible is full of warnings. And quite honestly, as the children of God, we should value warning. A stop sign is warning you that if you go through there, you will likely get hit. We should value that warning. And the Bible gives warnings at times. And I want you to hear me when I say to you today, I think the writer of Hebrews is trying to declare to you and me today the only way to have and walk in that confidence and that full assurance and that hope is to be in biblical community. The only way to do it is to be in biblical community. And the era of doing church in a big room for an hour a week and leaving, not even an hour anymore, it's 55 minutes, is what they declare. We're gonna do all of our church experience in 55 minutes in a big room all together and then split out and go do our things. Let me just tell you something. That is a plot of a very real enemy. To derail what we're talking about today. It is a plot of an enemy who wants to paralyze the body of Christ, who wants to make the body of Christ ineffective, who wants to make us anemic in our hope and anemic in our profession. The enemy, listen to me, he knows, he knows, he knows that when the church of Jesus Christ is firing on all eight cylinders, which includes biblical community, that the gates of hell will come down. He knows that the tactics of shame and guilt, they lose their power in biblical community. He knows that the weapons of addiction and dependency, they lose their stronghold in biblical community. The enemy knows that if he can keep you in rows for 50 minutes a week, that you will never have the power that the body of Christ is capable of. And you will never walk in the boldness and the victory that the children of God were actually destined to walk in. That we were called to provoke each other. And that requires some time. What do we provoke each other towards? We provoke each other towards love and towards good deeds. Look, look what he says, verse 25. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Do you know that phrase, giving up, is literally translated abandon or forsake? Do you know what that means? Here's what that means. It means when you are not in biblical community, you're not just taking a break, and you have not just stopped coming to, to your group. That word means you have abandoned your brothers and sisters in Christ. It means that you have left them and yourself unprotected and open to attack. Do you know that's the very same Greek word found in Matthew chapter 27 when Jesus uttered from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
turned your back on me because you are holy and I am now sin of the world. It's a big deal. What, what he's trying to say to you here is that word is a big deal. That, that not meeting together, it's a big, big, big deal. And he says, as some are in the habit of doing. Do you know what the habit he's talking about there? He's talking about, in other words, meeting together should be habitual. It's the exact opposite of our culture today. Exact opposite of our culture today. Because what, what we do in our culture today is we woke up in the morning and we, you know, we lick our fingers and hold it up to the wind and say, we're going today. Well, we're going to go to church this morning. Would we rather just stay here in our pajamas? Well, let's take a vote. Let's ask the children. Hey, let's ask the seven-year-olds. Should we go today or should we stay here in our pajamas and have waffles? And we're just going to let them leave the house. Listen, we're not flipping a coin on Sunday night or Wednesday night or whatever night when it's time to go to community group and trying to decide if we're going to go. He's saying, no, no, it's the exact opposite. It should be habitual. And the application is, what's the habit that's keeping you away from the habit of getting together? with your brothers and sisters in Christ. What, what, what is it? Is it your job? Is, is it kids? Is it sports? Is it sleep? Is it, what, what is it? What's the habit that's keeping you from the habit? And you better evaluate it as potentially a, a, a tool of the enemy in your life to keep you from all that God wants for you and all that God wants for your children. And it's just too easy to skip today. I'll check it out online, right? I miss Sunday morning. I'll just catch it later this week. Here's what, I, well, here's what I want you to hear the writer of Hebrews say to you today. Get to church and get in community. And don't just do church. Be the church. How do you do that? Look what he says. Throw it up there. Encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day coming. In other words, the day. You know what that day is all about. That's about the day that Jesus is coming. That's about the day uh, of all glory. That's about the day that he comes and splits the Mount of Olives wide open and, and it runs from one side to the other. That's about the day that Jesus comes back to get the church the day. In other words, our gathering on earth is an anticipation of our participation in heaven. And we are to encourage one another. You know what encourage means? It comes from two words. In encourage. That we put courage in. That's what it means to encourage somebody, is you put courage in and on that person. And, and that's part of walking in the body, the children of God, that, that we put courage in one another, that, that with the very comfort we were given, with the very grace that we were given, when we walk through some difficult ses session or season in our life, now we are to, with that very same comfort, comfort others, that we put courage in and on them, which may have been the very reason that God allowed you to go through that period of time, because he knew that moment was coming when you would be able to take the very comfort that God put on you, and you put it on somebody else, and you put in his compassion, in his grace, he's using you to comfort his, his creation and to comfort his children. You can put courage in one another. By the way, you can't do that when I'm preaching. Hopefully, you can, I can put courage in you, but you can't put courage in one another, which is the key word there, right? That's talking about small groups. You do that in homes. You put courage in one another. And when one of you has cancer, you put courage in that person and in that family and in that home. You do that through those intimate prayer times as a community group. You do that in, by bringing meals. You do that by tagging along into chemo appointments. You do that, you put courage in by doing life together. And I want you to hear me say today, I cannot imagine walking through some of the things that I have walked through in my life without biblical community. I can't even imagine it. And lovingly, I would say to those of you who, who are walking through life without it, without biblical community, 
I got no idea how you've done it. I'll just be honest with you. I don't know how you've done what you've done. And here's the question I want you to ponder today. Will you commit to get in biblical community? And I want you to hear me today. The best way that I can for the next 60 seconds, I want to explain this to you. I, I am not trying to guilt you into walking out there into the hallway at your campus to a community group expo to sign up for a group that you have no intention of going to. I, that is not what I'm trying to do. Last week, I was not trying to guilt or shame anyone into a place of service that, that you don't intend in serving in. And I, I, I'm, I'm trying to lead you to do the things that are for your good. They're for you. You, you serving and you being in community, listen, that's not about what I get out of it. It's about what you get out of it. And it's about what God would do in your life. Will you commit to find biblical community in your life? Let's pray together. Every campus, every head bowed and every heart open. And before we move into this application of community, can I just say, some of you here today, I said earlier it may not be for you, and, and actually I was wrong, it may be for you today. That you've never entered through the blood. You, you've never entered into the family of God. And, and my question for you today is, will you get in the family of God? Will you come on in? You let him be your way through that veil. And I, I want to lead you in a prayer helping you do just that. All across all of our campuses this morning. You want to trust Christ and give your life to Jesus. I, I want to lead you in a prayer. I'm going to pray it one phrase at a time so that you can simply pray it after me. And the words aren't magic, but I believe if they reflect the attitude and the will of your life, that the Bible teaches Jesus will step into your life today. You're going to hear people praying it all around you as well. Many of which who are praying it for the very first time and others who are praying it as an encouragement to you today. You want to trust Christ. You want to cross that line right where you're seated. Would you just pray with me and say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. Today I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord my Savior, my forgiver. In the best way that I know how, I turn my back on my sin and I trust you alone, Jesus, to save me. Thank you for saving me. I receive you and I receive salvation. Before I say amen today, I, I, I want to pray for our church, those who are already in the family. And if you're here today and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God through the preaching of the Word of God, you would say, Pastor, I'm not in biblical community. I would confess that. I'm not in biblical community. But I want to profess that I'm going to go find it. I'm going to find biblical community. If that's you today across all of our campuses, nobody looking except for me, I want to pray for you specifically today. I'm confessing I'm not in biblical community, but I'm professing I'm going to go find biblical community. Would you just slip your hand up and let me see it across every campus. Just slip it up. Father, for every hand that's lifted, at downtown, lift your hand. At South Tulsa, lift your hand. At Midtown, lift your hand. In Owasso, in the chapel, here at Battle Creek, in DuPage, in Cairo, just lift your hand. I'm praying for you right now. Father, every hand that's lifted, I pray that you would help them advance in their journey with Christ through biblical community. I pray you'd give them friends who would help them 
in their walk with Christ. I pray that you would give them relationships with, with, with people who, who will, just as iron sharpens iron, that they will sharpen one another and they will grow in their relationship with you. Make that path to community easy. Give them success on it that they may find it. In Jesus' name we pray and together we all say amen and amen. Would you thank the Lord today for the truth of the word of God.